When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Academy Award nominee The Great Beauty follows a writer as he leaves the lavish nightlife behind to discover the real beauty and truth in the timeless landscape of Rome. It's available on demand today. Josh Brolin is out for revenge after being in prison for 20 years in Spike Lee's Old Boy. It's available on demand starting on March 4th. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Coming up on the show, we'll tell some stories about outrageous acts of violence and equally outrageous acts of sexuality as we discuss Ridley Scott's The Counselor. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Inspired by The Counselor, we decided we'd go ahead and make a timely investment in a Juarez drug cartel ourselves just to see if it was really all that dangerous. And research. We research. want this to be authentic. Hard journalism. Yes. Yes. Anyway, I just want to say, I don't know why people say they need 10 fingers. Four turns out to be a perfectly functional <laughs> amount for day-to-day living. So while we can't recommend that, we are going to recommend some movies that, like The Counselor, feature major characters whose names we never learn. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand On Cable, which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? All right. There's really only one choice for our first pick this week, and that is Nymphomaniac, directed by Lars von Trier. It's a lengthy, I think it's... I think maybe the original cut is like five hours, but the version that's playing here is something in the neighborhood of four hours, but it's being broken into two volumes, and they're being uh, released separately. So the first volume will be available now through March 20th, and then volume two is available from March 20th through April 3rd. So you have opportunities to watch both films. And the description here says, a self-described nymphomaniac, uh, it's good that she's self-described, Charlotte Gainsbourg recounts the erotic experiences of her youth, and it comes with a warning of explicit sexual content. So yes, uh, this is is not one to watch for the whole family, unless you have a very weird and disturbing family. But for those of you who are uh, of age, I think it'll be a... Look, I I haven't seen these movies. I'm very much looking forward to them. Uh, They may be complete messes and crazy and insane, um, but they won't be boring. I feel very confident in saying that, Allison, that you will not be bored watching Nymphomaniac Volume 1 and Volume 2. You may be a little horrified. You may be confused, but you will not be bored. As a young girl, I discovered I was a Nymphomaniac. That's nothing to smile about. If you have wings, why not fly? 
If I asked you to take my virginity, would that be a problem? I don't see a problem. What if it's nasty? Then you just think of a bag of chocolate sweeties. I wanted to be picked up, put down, again and again. I wanted to be treated like a thing. May I tell you something? Sure. You're my first one. Really? I love you. <laughs> I was starting to have trouble remembering who was who. I've thought about you often. Have you thought of me? Wow. Would it be all right if I show the children the whoring bed? You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. So that's our first pick, Nymphomaniac. Again, Volume 1 is going to be available now through March 20th, and Volume 2 is available March 20th through April 3rd. Our next pick is the film called Better Living Through Chemistry. It's directed by Jeff Moore and David Pazemeinter, and it's going to be available on March 14th. The description of this one is, This dark comedy sees a small town's pharmacist's life turn into a walk on the wild side when he embarks on a drug and alcohol-fueled affair with a customer. And it had me at drug and alcohol-fueled affair, because I'm a fan of those, generally speaking. And then the cast list actually got my attention as well. It's an excellent cast, including one of my favorite actors. Sam Rockwell is the lead. Uh, you've also got Olivia Wilde, Michelle Monaghan, Ray Liotta, and Jane Fonda. And uh, it's it's Sam Rockwell who's the pharmacist going on the uh, drug and alcohol-fueled affair. And uh, so you can see already that it's uh, it's kind of in a sweet spot for him. That's definitely something he can handle. I saw a trailer for this uh, a few weeks ago. I don't remember what I was seeing, but I saw this before one of the movies I saw recently, and I thought, oh, this looks intriguing. I mean, with a different actor, I'm not so sure I would be as interested. But with Sam Rockwell in there, I've definitely, I'm definitely curious. So that's Better Living Through Chemistry. That's going to be available on demand starting on March 14th. And finally, we've got one more here. It's called The Face of Love directed by Ari Posen, and that's going to be available starting on March 13th. Uh, the description here, Annette Benning stars as a widow who falls in love with a man, played by Ed Harris, who looks exactly like her deceased husband in this moving romantic drama, also stars Robin Williams in a moving romantic drama. The thing that really caught my eye here is it's yet another movie, Allison, after Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal and this other movie that's coming out soon called The Double with Jesse Eisenberg that's about doppelgangers and doubles and guys playing actors playing two different characters who look exactly alike. So uh, the, the plot description sounds fine, but I'm more curious that, like, why are we seeing a doppelganger trend? We seem to have... We're verging on a trend piece here, Allison between this and Enemy and The Double. And so I'm just kind of curious about seeing them all and comparing them all. So this one is called The Face of Love, and that's going to be available on VOD starting on March 13th. shots we are looking at films in which there are major characters who never get named or who are referred to by some kind of obvious nickname i feel like there's one actor who particularly rules this category you know who i'm thinking of rip taylor absolutely <laughs> interesting name to go to really uh no I was thinking, that wasn't who you were thinking, thinking of. more clint eastwood oh right he was my second guess rip taylor's done some fine work there. <laughs> yes <laughs> At the end of all the Jackass movies when he comes out. 
If you look in the credits, I'm pretty sure he's named as the man with the confetti. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not, but. Yeah. But no, Clint Eastwood in various yes. Westerns yes. plays the really. The man with no name. Exactly. Although ironically, he, in most of those movies, I think in all of those movies, he actually does have a name. He has three different names in in the three movies. I think he's like Joe in one and Blondie in another. Which I never understood. He's not a particularly blonde man. No. It's it's a weird nickname to attach to him. No. Yeah, it doesn't really make a ton of sense. Yeah. Well, spaghetti westerns. Maybe exactly. something got lost. Who knows? Maybe something got lost in translation somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yes, you're right. Clint Eastwood. He's like the definitive guy, right? Who so rolls definitely, into town. Yeah. definitely, we're going to be recommending some Clint Eastwood movies, right? Oh, whoops! Uh, Sorry, Clint Eastwood. No, that's obvious. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm teasing because that's the obvious pick. We gotta, yeah. we've gotta recommend some other stuff. And I have, I have one pick of mine that'll definitely connect uh, to the Clint Eastwood oeuvre of Men with No Name. Excellent. But I think, uh, in terms of general ideas, though, I mean, he certainly suggests one, which is that it's a popular trope for action movies, westerns, genre films, where you want to portray a man of sort of like mythic awesomeness is like a good you know like he's almost beyond hu being human like it suggests that he's like almost a superhero you know to be the man with no name you know it's like that almost sounds like his superhero name you know like the and no in name man yeah no name man <laughs> uh yeah but like uh, uh, some movies that we're not going to recommend that definitely fit into this category movies like you know uh the driver the walter hill film where he where you know the the greatest driver ever and and, and I don't I, he's just the driver he doesn't have a name and then a movie that was very much inspired by it drive where again Ryan Gosling plays driver or the driver you know does not have a name right mystery man we don't know right. his background Stripped of like certain kind of obvious characteristics to kind of have a mystique to him mystique and also I think in those cases does suggest a certain amount of professionalism to the extreme right that right. he's like stripped away all of those other things until he's he's the best of the best and all he cares about is driving and being a professional and not having any intention it's almost like having a name would weigh him down, you know, like an identity. He doesn't want to have that. He just wants to be this this force, this, you know, this force that drives, right. which sounds really silly when you say it. But, it I mean, works it works well in those – it works well in those Absolutely. movies. Yeah, yeah and it, it lends a certain abstract quality to a lot of stories. Like, it, mm. it makes people almost – gives them a bit of like a fable sense you know i'm thinking of the road where i think Viggo mortensen's character is not named mm. uh, i don't remember if the boy is named either but you know it's it's very at that point also when it's just the two of you in an apocalyptic landscape why do you have to yell each other's names right you know exactly who hey you're you will to. probably suffice exactly you may be like the only two non-cannibals left right. in the world so and that's cormac mccarthy right that so is we're, cormac we're McCarthy. talking about a guy so this is a trope exactly that he particularly likes yeah or something like once you know where Yes. They're just, uh, which is not an uncommon thing. The guy and the girl, basically, mm -hmm. in in certain movies. Another romantic film like yeah, Antichrist, exactly. Great yes. date movie, similar. A great double feature, I think. I those think so two too. They go together perfectly. And no names there. Again, the sunrise also, as well. I think. Yes, the Murnau film. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to convey sort of, I guess myth, maybe a mythic or a universal quality, perhaps that yeah. you know. Or you know, I was going to add to your. You, you missed one in your oh, professionalism please. quality. Waterworld. The Mariner. The Mariner, yes. yes. Well, that's almost, yeah, th yes. <laughs> yes, and actually, uh, for the rest of this podcast, I prefer if you refer to me as the podcaster instead of Matt. I, I, no problem. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely 
you know, very heroic sounding. Yes. Um, I will speak in a more heroic voice. Yeah. Any others? I guess there's also then there's the like the ones that are clever with it. Mm. Something like Fight Club. Yes. Or Layer Cake. Layer Cake, where don't they like bleep out his yeah, name at one point? Exactly. And He's I think very in, coy in, about the, it. in the credits, maybe his name is like, like a X, bunch of X's. X's. Yeah. yeah, a bunch of X's. Yeah, Layer Cake. That's another another one I, I had thought of. Another, you know, crime genre film where it does add a certain element of like, yeah, mythic quality in there. It's almost, you said playful. I think it's also kind of like sly, like, you know, like. Too, he's almost like too cool to have a name, you know, like he doesn't want or we're not cool enough to learn his name. Yeah. Or and uh, with Nell and I as well. Mm. Another one where there's and I who doesn't really have a name. He's credited, I think, even as and I. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, I don't know that there's like any one thing to say about these other than I feel like the, the best ones uh, uh, don't draw attention to the fact that you don't know their name. You know, I right. think that like Fight Club. You, you prefer to have it where at the end of the movie, when the credits realize... come up, or you try to when you're talking about the movie, and you're like, "Oh, you know, uh, what's his name?" And then you kind of like realize that they never named him. Yeah, it's I kind, kind of, of a cooler like trick. If than... you can pull it off, it's very difficult to do. It is. It People's is. names are used <laughs> a, a lot. And not to get ahead of ourselves to the counselor, it's not too subtle in the counselor. Right. They, they sort of like draw attention to it in a way where. Anyone would have no used his normal, his actual God-given name, you right. know, like no one would have – people are calling him counselor like he's in he's in, in court. court. Yes. Right. And it doesn't – I mean – We'll get to that we'll get later. To that. Yes. All right. So let's move on to our picks. You yes. want to go first? Sure. I'll go with uh, with one – an older film, actually, and one that's very careful about not naming this character. All right. It is The Seven-Year Itch, which mm. is currently available on Netflix directed and co-written by Billy Wilder. Not my favorite of his films. Uh, it definitely wears its age more than some of his others because the whole premise of the film is that it's about the businessmen of Manhattan, one in particular, during the summer when they've shipped off their wives and children to, who, of course, you know, their wives who don't work, uh, who are housewives, off to um, the country or to the seaside for the summer so that they can play and have adventures while the men, like, continue to work at the office and sleep around and drink and act, you know, misbehave, basically. Right. And the character who's not named in this case is the girl played by, you know, one of the ultimate girls of cinema, Marilyn Monroe. Yes. And she plays a kind of actress who sublets the apartment upstairs in the building of Richard Sherman, played by Tom Ewell, who was the star of the Broadway play on which the movie is based. And uh, Ewell, who kind of uh, is in a bit of a midlife crisis, he wants to be good, but then also wants to be reassured that he's irresistible to women and that his wife shouldn't take it for granted that he's, uh, you know, not going to stray. So and then suddenly here comes this like impossible, extremely Marilyn Monroe character who, you know, goes around it famously in the white dress. You know, one of the iconic scenes in the movie is where she stands above the subway grate, uh, but also just, you know, comes over and has drinks with him, uh, you know, wants to spend time in his air conditioning. And I think that, you know, obviously stripping her down to being the girl fits this character entirely as she's used largely as temptation and the symbol of temptation mm -hmm. uh you know richard sherman's character he doesn't want he's trying not to drink he's trying not to smoke and he's trying not to cheat basically and it treats all three of those things along the same level as if one doesn't require the participation of a willing other human being <laughs> what's interesting about uh, i was reading about the play which i haven't seen mm -hmm. or read mm -hmm. and in the play the girl 
has her own kind of is given more characterization she has her own kind of reasons for wanting to consider this affair right and taking away a lot of that and making this character like you know this really ditzy beautiful blonde character and and kind of not exploring any of her inner life at all mm-hmm. you know literally like making her the girl yes uh, actually makes the movie work a little better i think huh. or the the story because it becomes less about two characters who enter in an, into an affair together and more about this guy the dilemma that he's uh, not even the dilemma and it's in some ways until towards the end it's suggested that like this like the Marilyn Monroe character is hit on all the time so often that she barely registers it. Okay. She doesn't as even necessarily think about the fact that he may be like trying to resist sleeping with her. It's not necessarily implied that he, she's like given it a lot of thought, you mm-hmm. know. And that kind of makes it a little sweeter in that he seems a little more ridiculous and it seems less a story about some like legitimate adultery and or considering adultery and more one about a guy who's kind of like fighting with himself a bit mm-hmm. and like his own self-perception and right. like kind of feeling a little underappreciated so uh, the fact that it it kind of leaves this character symbolic in this way i think works out pretty well as much as it you know means that you don't really have a full female character it's much more a portrait of, of richard sherman uh, but that said it's also if you if you haven't seen this yet it's one of like the classic monroe p- performances and really shows off her comic timing she's manages to be very funny in playing these ditzes always and uh it's it's there's a particularly good scene where she, they're playing the piano and he tries to make a move on her and she kind of shrugs it off as like oh this happens to be all the time uh it's pretty fantastic <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about Rachmaninoff with it shakes you and quakes you and stuff, but this really gets me. It does? And how? <laughs> I can feel the goose pimples. Goose pimples? Because now I'm going to take you in my arms and kiss you very quickly and very hard. Wait a minute. So that is oh, The Seven Year Itch, currently on Netflix. And incidentally, there's a part in it where some guy comes over and says, who's that blonde in the kitchen? And uh, Richard Sherman says, wouldn't you like to know, maybe it's Marilyn Monroe. So even at this point, <laughs> it gets a meta touch. Nice. Uh, that's a good pick. I, you know, it's not one of my favorite Billy Wilder movies, but you're making an interesting uh, argument for it and making me want to uh, revisit it. I've only seen it one time and uh, it wasn't, you know, I didn't love it for a lot of the reasons that you were saying. That yeah. Her character is just sort of like this, you know, sort of like... like hollow thing. Yeah, yeah, this hollow temptation that's just there, you know, without much of, you know, agency or thoughts of her own. But right. it, the way you're describing it is you know, interesting. It's making me want to uh, take another look at it. Anyway, uh, my first pick is the one uh, that does connect to those famous Clint Eastwood Man With No Name movies because it directly inspired it. It is Yojimbo from 1961, directed by Akira Kurosawa and streaming on Hulu Plus from the Criterion Collection. And uh, it did later inspire A Fistful of Dollars about uh, a man with 
no name who has a name in the film, which I think is Joe in that case. Uh, the original film is set in Japan in, I think, the 1860s and follows this nameless ronin as he wanders basically at random into this town where he finds out that the town is kind of falling to pieces. It's being destroyed from within by these two rival gangs. And he decides after hearing the story in like two minutes that none of them are worth, you know, like the, none of them are, are, are worthy of being alive. And he like announces that he's going to kill every single one of them by himself and then goes about doing that. And he does it by manipulating both sides, playing them against one another. He offers his services as a mercenary to one side and then he'll back out of the deal and go to the other side and go back and forth. Uh, at one point in the movie, the character, the Ronin, who has no name, played by Toshiro Mifune, he is actually asked, like, what his name is, and he looks out a window. There's a cutaway out a window where we see, like, a, a, a field of flowers, and he gives a name that, like, translated from Japanese is Mulberry Field 30-year-old. So it's pretty clear he's just <laughs> – look. it's like, say what you see. He looked out a window and just said some gibberish. And it's it's pretty clear that it's a pseudonym and that he you know this is not a real name. It's like calling the counselor the counselor. It's not his name. It's just what he's going by. And I think it, it, the reason is for all this. We already pretty much I think outlined really well why it works is that you know it, it lends this character who is an incredible fighter who has he's almost like supernatural in these battles. Uh, it lends him this like mythic quality. And I think the other thing it does in this specific case is that it sort of puts us on equal footing with these gangsters, with the people in the town in a sense, because even though we're following him and we see him announce that he's going to do this, uh, you know, we don't really know anything about him. We're, like the people in the town, he's just sort of this mystery to us as well. Like, we don't know who he is. We don't know where he's come from. Uh, he is this enigma to us. So we can never get ahead of him. We can never quite pick out or anticipate how things are going to happen. Uh, like the lack of background, the lack of detail, and the lack of a name, which goes along with it, it kind of keeps us running to catch up with the movie instead of us knowing or being able to predict where the movie is going to go, which I think is part of the fun is that the movie has all these twists and turns and you can never quite predict what's going to happen. So the, the the fact that he has no name is is an essential part of it. But uh, not my favorite – again, like not my favorite Billy Wilder movie, Seven Year Itch. Yojimbo, not my favorite Akira Kurosawa movie, but I was looking at it again uh, last night, having not seen it in a, quite a few years. And first of all, the uh, the stream on Hulu Plus looks fantastic, just incredible. The HD stream is, you know, one of the better ones I've seen, uh, even from Criterion. And God, it's just Toshiro Mifune is just yeah. so amazing in this role. Just and 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 you can see that I don't I don't want to say Eastwood stole his shtick, but clearly <laughs> there was an influence just in sort of the, the laconic nature, the way he walks, the way he's like chewing on things, toothpicks, or just that sort of like devil may care attitude that he has. He just does not give a crap about anyone, and it's it's just really appealing and super fun because the guys that he's he's uh, you know killing are just so they're venal or they're jerks or they're you know they're 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 a little cartoonish. And I think uh, the fact that he is so suave and so kind of cool, really, it makes him seem that much, you know, more of the hero in our eyes. So uh, it's certainly worth a watch. It's Yojimbo, and it is uh, streaming on Hulu+. Plus. 
All right. My next pick is also an Asian film, though it is uh, from China. It is Hero, which is available for rent on Amazon, Vudu, YouTube. Zhang Yimou's 2002 wuxia film, uh, which is set in the 200s BC in China in the Warring States period, if you're keeping track. Um, and <clears throat> stars Tony, Tony Liang, Maggie Chung, and Donnie Yen as a trio of assassins trying to assassinate or trying to kill the king of the Qin state. And of course, Jet Li as the protagonist, essentially, a character who is called Nameless and who tells the stories that kind of play out as flashbacks and possible, possibly subjective stories over the course of the film. So he provides a framing device. What I think, what I really enjoy about this film, other than the incredible lavishness of its uh, presentation, it's color-themed, essentially, so that different stories, as they're told in flashback, have different, uh, are all like red, or they're all white, and it's really astonishingly beautiful. Uh, what I love is that the film starts off with a character who goes by the name Nameless, who seems to be of the type that we've talked about before, like this super heroic character. He's incredibly good with a sword. And the reason that he's come to talk to the king is that he claims to have defeated and killed all three of these gifted assassins who are all like looking for revenge, basically, against the king. And... And then as the story goes along, it becomes one instead of, in, in the way that's incredibly not American, it's very non-Western, it becomes a story of people deciding to form a, a, a state, like a whole state, right, the country of China, and people basically getting ground under for the for the cop in order to allow this to happen. And, uh, I, you know, some critics accused this of being a, the film of, of being a defense of totalitarianism when it came out, which I think is over the top uh, and, not, and not fair. But it is certainly an incredibly, like, it is not the message you would ever find in a blockbuster when so many of, like, an American blockbusters are based around the individual standing out and saving the day. The the message is like so different in this and so much about nationalism and about this idea of the greater good. And I I love that it is so it it, it comes it takes such a different view of like what that greater good means and heroism as the title indicates. And you know, it's um it's a particularly good stoic performance from Jet Li. Jet Li does stoic well. I think he's maybe not when he's asked to stretch too much as an actor is when he starts to get into uncomfortable points. And it's got, you know, amazingly choreographed fight scenes, a lot of like wire work, very, uh, you know, gracefully filmed ones. And uh, also Zhang Ziyi in this, in a kind of earlier film of hers, uh, who gets a particularly good fight scene as well. So that is Hero. It is available for rent on Amazon, Vudu, and YouTube. All right. Another good pick. My last pick is uh, available for rent on Amazon and iTunes, and it is the 1957 film 12 Angry Men, directed by Sidney Lumet. And uh, this one doesn't just have one character that is uh, nameless. It's got 12. Uh, it's directed by, again, Sidney Lumet. It's based on the teleplay by Reginald Rose. 
And the story is very simple. You've got a dozen mildly agitated guys on a jury. They're placed in a deliberation room to decide someone's fate. We haven't seen the trial. We haven't heard the evidence. Uh, But the room seems pretty convinced it's an open and shut case that the guy is guilty until this one juror, played by Henry Fonda, he begins to voice his reasonable doubts. And that starts this conversation about the case. Of the 12 men, at the very end, you learn two of their names as they're on their way out of the of the <laughs> courthouse. But the rest of the men and the rest of the time, they're just completely anonymous. They're referred to by their juror number. So Fonda is juror number eight. The foreman, played by Martin Balsam, is juror number one. And the main antagonist, the guy who's the most convinced of the, the guilt of the defendant, Lee J. Cobb, he's juror number three. Uh, so unlike a movie like Yojimbo or all those action movies we mentioned, it's a little the use of the anonymous thing here. It's a little bit different. I mean, it's almost the opposite. I think instead of trying to lend a mystique or to make these guys seem larger than life, I think the goal here is is like I said, I think it's almost the exact opposite. It's to create this very believable group of jurors like if these people seemed mythic or incredible, that would ruin the point of the film, which is to sort of give you this glimpse of both the sort of dangers of the American legal system and also some of the the greatness of it, that the whole spectrum of how it works and not naming the characters in this case gives them kind of like a, you know, an everyman function. Uh, We can put ourselves into the shoes of everyone in that room at different points, you know, like no one, you know, if they had names, maybe we would go, oh, this person has a very ethnic name, you know, that's not me, Or, or this person is very rich, or this person seems very poor. Like, they're, they they seem essentially the same, right? And, 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 and they're, they're kind of equal, right? You know, it, it emphasizes the equality in the jury room, right? That each man has one vote, and each vote counts equally, and no one is necessarily any more powerful than the others if they're willing to speak out, right? That, like, uh, during the movie, we, we watch as, as sort of, like, different people kind of switch their votes and, and kind of are swayed, but, you know, at least in theory... Like everyone is equal in that room and no one is necessarily right or wrong until there's a verdict reached. So on a practical level, too, it also, I guess, reflects the way, you know, let, let's say like Allison, you are, you know, tried in a, in a court. Let's say you um, what would you be tried for? Let's say you um, let's say you running stole a drug cartel, running a drug cartel. All right. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Let's say you're tried. You I was know, thinking about it anyway. Yeah. You. Yeah. I mean, you've got the fingers already gone. Yeah. So you're 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 halfway there. You've been initiated. So you're on trial for running a drug cartel. You know, you don't know the men and, and women in the jury. They're just faceless jurors deciding your fate. And it's... But I will find out about their families. Correct. In that case, you would know because you're an incredibly powerful <laughs> cartel leader and you would probably Sorry, do something. I'm yes. undermining your story. You are. Go on. You are undermining it, but it's true. You, you're getting very into character and I admire that. <laughs> do you want to do any like work with any no, no. props or no, anything? No, good. I, I, I'm set. I have this garrote wire here if you want to. <laughs> no? Okay. But yeah, like, so the defendant doesn't know the men and women in the jury room, doesn't know their names. You know, the jurors remain anonymous. So it has that, it lends sort of that element to it, too, that the jurors in the justice system, they're supposed to be anonymous. And I think it, it kind of has that element to it, too. If I was on trial for my life, I'd want my lawyer to tear the prosecution witnesses to shreds, or at least try to. Look, there was one alleged eyewitness to this killing. Someone else claims he. Heard the killing, saw the boy run out afterwards, and there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. But actually, those two witnesses were the entire case for the prosecution. Supposing they're wrong. What do you mean, supposing they're wrong? 
What's the point of having witnesses at all? Could they be wrong? What are you trying to say? Those people sat on the stand under oath. They're only people. People make mistakes. Could they be wrong? Well, no, I don't think so. You know so. Oh, come on. Nobody can know a thing like that. This isn't an exact science. That's right. It isn't. So for all those reasons, the anonymous quality certainly is important. And it's a wonderful film. If you've never seen it, it is, uh, it's a classic. It's one of my favorites. Uh, this one is one of my favorites by its director, Sidney Lumet, as opposed to some of the other ones we've mentioned. Uh, it's available for rent on Amazon and iTunes. That's uh, 12 Angry Men. You seem unsettled. I'm all right. I just need you to be sure that you're locked in. Because I don't know. My recommendation, anyway, counselor. Don't do it. Well, I guess I'm a little taken aback at the cautionary nature of this conversation. If you're not in, you need to tell me. Why? Because you don't know someone until you know what they want. Is why. Well, that brings us to our listener's choice section in which we give you three options to vote for for our main review. In the last episode, we offered up three recent releases, The Broken Circle Breakdown, The Counselor, and Wajda. It was not a close race. The Counselor, which is currently available on VOD and iTunes for rent, won with over 60% of the vote. Uh, so we will be talking about the director's cut, the quote-unquote unrated extended cut, both because a snap poll on Twitter told us to, and also because few directors really have as steady a relationship with the director's cut as Ridley Scott, who has oftentimes released you know, what he considers more definitive versions of his films on home video. And uh, that seems to be the case here. Apparently, his commentary is pretty epic on the the release, which is not available. Right, we rent. didn't get to we hear did it. We did not get that, but uh, I read a little bit about it, and it sounds like he's feels pretty strongly about this version. So Scott directed The Counselor from a screenplay by the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Cormac McCarthy, whose work has been adapted to screen before his novels in The Road, Child of God, and All the Pretty Horses, which also starred Penelope Cruz, who was in this movie, uh, but who in this film is writing his first original screenplay. The film is set around the border between El Paso, Texas, and the still very dangerous neighboring Mexican city of Juarez, which uh, several years ago had one of the highest murder rates in the world. I think it's dropped down a few slots since then. Congratulations, Juarez. <laughs> Michael Fassbender stars as the counselor of the title, and we never learn his name, though that's true for some of the other characters as well, including the Green Hornets and the Wire Man. The counselor, who has just gotten engaged to his girlfriend, Laura, played by Penelope Cruz, decides to invest in a one-time drug deal with Westray, played by Brad Pitts, uh, in which his friend Rainier, played by Javier Bardem, uh, is also involved. And his intimidating girlfriend, Malkina, played by Cameron Diaz, who really owns this movie, uh, is, uh, seems to be aware a little bit about what's happening. This deal goes wrong in ways that involve multiple decapitations and one already infamous flashback to a sex act involving a luxury automobile. Mm. Now, this film is divisive. Manola Dargis at the New York Times was a huge supporter of it. Andrew O'Hare at Salon called it one of the worst movies he's ever seen. Mm. So, Matt, my first question to you is the very basic. What is your reaction to it? Is it a disaster? 
Is it a masterpiece or is it somewhere in between? I'm gonna I'm gonna go somewhere in between. Uh, there are things about it I enjoyed. There were things about it I did not enjoy. I would not call it a masterpiece. I certainly wouldn't say it's the worst film ever. But I I have to say I was I was actually a little bit disappointed. I I, I was kind of hoping that I would love it. And you know you hear some of the stories about the Cameron Diaz uh, having sex with a car and some of the more outrageous elements of it. And I'm going, this movie is right up my alley. And <laughs> and those parts to an extent definitely were, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, my sort of takeaway, and I'm sure someone could put it together an elegant defense of it against this. And perhaps you will was, I didn't really feel like I was watching a movie so much as I was feeling, you know, I was sort of like, watching a book that had been turned into a, a very uncinematic movie. You know, like, I'm not sure that this was really suited to being a movie versus being Cormac McCarthy's next book. If he had written a book called The Counselor and it was like this screenplay turned into a book, I think I might have enjoyed that more than the film. I, d I just, I didn't really feel like there was a lot here that... Other than some of those moments that were really outrageous, that really like jumped off the screen. It it really was a lot of people just sitting around and talking. And I know that's kind of Cormac McCarthy's shtick to to a certain degree are these long you know conversations about these sorts of things. Uh, but I just some of them uh, didn't didn't it didn't connect for me as much as I had hoped. And I, I so you know if we were doing this on like the letterboxed uh, five star rating, I would probably give it like a two and a half, like right down the middle. Yeah, I was also mixed on it. In some ways, I, I think it would have been better if it was wilder, or at least that's what I was imagining. Yeah, I expected it to be wilder. Yeah, and in I, I think that the crazy scenes are some of the better ones. I mean, the Cameron Diaz's character in general and her, like her pet cheetahs and her, mm -hmm. you know, Versace outfits and just general... Her cheetahs, she has like Cheetah spots. tattoos, yeah. yeah. And her general like kind of like openly predatory nature is yes. really interesting, you know, and, uh, and fun and fun. It is fun. And, and when the film, like the car scene or the scene towards the end with the Bolito are both extremely memorable and disturbing, Yes, you know, but a lot of the rest of the film is abstract in a way that just seems like on the verge of silly rather than being intentionally stylized. Mm. I, I felt, mm. I, I mean, the film is certainly stylized, not just from the fact that we only hear the main character called the counselor, you know, it's shot in this kind of phantasmagoric version of the border that was, it was mostly shot in Europe in Spain, hmm. you know? Yeah. So it, it doesn't resemble a real place in a lot of ways. It re resembles kind of an idea of a place. Right. And there's something interesting about that. But a lot of the rest of the time, it it cuts the action to be so sparse as to make a lot of the plot, you know, barely understandable. And, and not in a way that feels elegant, you right. know, but in a way that feels kind of difficult, like yeah. unnecessarily difficult. Absolutely. And I think it's all deliberate, but I just didn't find it very satisfying. I agree. You know, that, that, that all these conversations, such as you said, they're very abstract. Uh, they just, you know, and they, they ramble on and it's just, there are moments where it like kind of snaps into focus and there are, you know, it's Cormac McCarthy. He's a brilliant writer. So there are like lines here or there. We go, Oh, that's a great line. Or, Oh, this was a great moment. But there's that, those are sort of, there's sort of like the, the moments of violence. You're sort of like 
going through this long rambling conversation and then there's suddenly a moment, you know, there's suddenly an incredible line that you just want to, you know, savor and watch over and over or they're going there's a lot of talk, talk, talk. And then all of a sudden there's this incredible brief sequence like with Cameron Diaz in the car or the bo- bo- the Bolito, as you said, which is very, very memorable yes. and, and kind of awesome, yeah. actually. Uh, which... Like the character who gets it, I think. Right. It's like it's not... It's not if people random. haven't watched it, they're going to have no idea what we're talking yes. about. This is basically this this elaborate murder device, yes. which has been set up in, like, one of the first scenes. A character describes it. Yeah. And then later in the movie, a character is actually sort of put it's into it. It's basically a mechanical garrote that tightens right. around your neck. Right. Yes. Into- and it's, it's described in this very – if like, in a way that's <laughs> – so eloquent that it doesn't really make sense for the character i felt right. but uh in a very memorable way and then when we finally see it it is more it is, memorable. Me- it is everything it is promised yes. to be and more which is which is saying something because yeah. as you said they build it up in the description and then it pays off in a pretty gruesome and almost comical way actually yeah. i don't know about you but like there's a there's a there's a shot there's a single shot that actually made me laugh in that sequence but uh the one thing i wanted to mention and you, I think when you mentioned where it was available, I actually watched it on Amazon. And normally I have a very good experience, you know, like with the quality on Amazon. And I have to say, this time I watched it like I, because of how I had to watch it. I had to watch it on my computer on like the SD stream. And I don't know if it was the SD stream or if this is just the print that was put online or what. I found it to be really kind of dark and muddy and like sort of in just one of the least appealing sort of visual experiences i've had streaming or in this case like renting a movie online in a while where it just didn't look very good i mean i don't know how where you watched it and how it looked yeah. to you but the version i watched like i would t- definitely tell people you know probably pay for the hd or or try a different website or whatever or watch it on vod because my experience watching it was just it just like a lot of the scenes are sort of set interior but without any light like all the only light is sort of like daytime light coming from windows or something so the characters are kind of dim or they're sort of like backlit and a lot of it just looked muddy and kind of hard to see to me i don't know yeah. if you had a similar experience i i rented it on itunes i got the hd version and it didn't it looked fine to me yeah maybe yeah. that was my mistake was i should have watched it in hd but anyway let, lesson learned there you gotta you gotta watch this movie in hd because it, it yeah it didn't look so great to me so i what did you think about you know we mentioned the bolito and it's described in what's essentially a monologue by yes. javier bardem's character mm-hmm. early in the movie mm-hmm. and it's one of several instances in a lot of ways this movie seems to be about like telling people disturbing stories you know uh right. the, he later tells a story about the car and malkina and then later malkina tries to kind of coax a sexy story out of penelope cruz's character and then when she is unable to goes to the priest in a scene that has like no just kind of hangs by itself in the film right goes to the priest a priest she's not catholic and attempts to confess to him Impli- implied is that she has the craziest stories of all time. Right. Um, but she doesn't actually she, get to tell anyone. She doesn't of them. do it. He runs away. Right. He like leaves. Yeah. And uh, there seems to be some kind of, kind of, it's not quite like a pattern, but it does seem to be part of the movie's idea is like many of its kind of most memorable ideas are presented in these long anecdotes. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I'm not, what do you think of that? My My sort of take on it was that. You know, again, part of this deliberate uh, attempt by Scott and and McCarthy to like make a movie where the plot is not only like minimal but almost like unknowable deliberately, and like 
the things that happen in this movie almost happen completely off screen in terms of the plot being that this guy, this counselor played by Michael Fassbender, who we should talk about at some point, you know, wants to get into the, the drug business. He like needs money and this he thinks is an easy way to get it. And essentially the whole movie is him like waiting, 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 waiting for things to happen, not really doing much of his own. And just as it's happening, we're hearing these stories and it seems sort of like about I don't know. I mean, again, I, I because of when this movie came out, which was last year, when there were so many movies about capitalism and crime and conflating those two things, to me it sort of seemed like uh, maybe a, perhaps a commentary on that, that these people who are all in these beautiful uh, locations, you know, country clubs and, and, and bars and expensive restaurants and lavish, you know, apartments and houses, that they're sort of like oblivious going through their lives, sort of thinking they're in control – but really not having any control while this this very dark story is kind of going on uh, beyond their sort of the scope of their vision. Again, I think that was the aim. I don't know that it really necessarily comes through. Yeah, yeah. well, I just, just – or paid off in a really – to me, it just wasn't very satisfying. Like I didn't really – like you said, I didn't really get much out of those specific anecdotes other than so many of them are about, again, like the sort of the predatory nature of humanity in general and these people specifically – and the kind of like law of the jungle nature of this drug ecosystem where everyone is trying to screw everyone. And by the end of the movie, most of the people have been killed by one person or another, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, I, I mean, I, there is something a little interesting about the idea of it being about the Faustian bargain that he makes, right? This devil's bargain in that he he seems to be a somewhat shady character or at least he hangs around with shady people before but right. this is clearly his first time making a deal like this yes and he does nothing like as you said most of, most of the story is about him waiting he does almost nothing active to make this deal happen or right. not make it happen in fact the one thing he does that like reflects anything about it is largely kind of incidental it's coincidental right like this this uh, involving a guy who's in prison that he helps out. The thing with the green hornet. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, okay. And and that is not related. He has no idea of it being related to right. to the drug deal at all. Uh, but that there is something interesting about that. Like he stepped over a line into this like dark side of this capitalist forces in which everyone is this predator. And a sense of how little he's prepared for that. He kind of gets warned off, right? Every, all of these people, uh, including Brad Pitt's Brad character, Pitt, say, and, yeah, like, don't you know, do it. Don't do it. These people decapitate. They, like, don't, right. like, but as soon as he makes it, like, there's no going back, mm -hmm. right? And that's kind of, it, like, the point of the movie in the end is, like, you can't fix this. You made this decision. Now you right. have to live with it. Uh, I just don't know that that is that compelling. Agreed. Like, that it, it really is that resonant right so uh, michael fassbender yeah what did you think of his performance here i i kind of thought it was like the first kind of bad performance i'd seen him give actually and i think part of it is he has what i call christian bale disease that thing where he's doing that voice that british actors do when they can't find like a an accent to do and they they talk like this <laughs> and speak in a hushed tone all the time everywhere they go and say things in the, and it just it just seems so forced and unnatural like no one no one speaks like that except christian bale and actors in movies that are trying like british actors in movies who are trying to sound american those are the only people who ever speak like that and i i, I don't know every time everything like and and so much of it is dialogue this is a movie about people sitting in rooms and talking and so much of his dialogue 
it just seemed forced and unnatural. And later in the movie, he has some very emotional scenes where are actually less about dialogue and much more about reacting and emotion and pure like sort of expressions of the of grief and things like that. And I thought he was much better in those scenes. But so much of the movie with him talking with Javier Bardem and Brad Pitt, he I mean, he certainly looks the part and. You know, he's handsome as a mofo, but I just I, I actually was a little disappointed. I really did think it was really like the first thing I'd seen him in where I was I was underwhelmed. I, uh, yeah, it seems like he never really finds the character. I right. mean, partially because his character is there is so, no character. He's black. Yeah, so yeah. stylized. I, I did. I think the trouble I would have with it is just that he's supposed to be just crazily in love. And I felt like. There's, I mean, the opening scene, which is a sex scene, right. which is like one of the scenes that had been trimmed down significantly okay. for the theatrical right. release, is basically has to do the work for it. And right. I just don't know that it really pulls it off. You know, it's certainly a like, and again, in the tradition of the film, a lot of its dirtiness is in the words used. Yes. Uh, but I didn't feel like it did enough to kind of make you invested in these characters relationships mm. to kind of what it came around at at the end well okay right. so what did you think of cameron diaz she i mean she i thought she was fun i mean it's funny because i thought she was pretty good and then i i read some stuff after i had seen the movie and a lot of it was was pretty negative it seemed like people thought she was miscast and and like not really you know didn't really fit the role that she was straining to play it i i thought she was pretty good i had a lot of fun watching her and thought she had almost this like Marlena Dietrich kind of, uh, you know, vibe going on where she was just like poisoned, you know, and, and I thought she was a heck of a lot of fun to watch. The one I thought was really miscast was Penelope Cruz, I thought. And again, part of it is the writing is just her character is kind of underwritten as just sort of this like lovesick puppy dog who doesn't have a lot to do other than just, again, like you said, be in love without a lot of backstory or, or emotion or, you know, or really even like – um you know motivation for like or how does she what does she think about the counselor right i mean they're seen in that kind of idea about like information the passing along right there's a scene where where cameron diaz's character offers to tell her how much her ring is worth right and we've already seen a long discussion about basically we saw him buy the ring money yeah Yeah. but that she doesn't want to know you know, and it's kind of suggested that that's how their relationship works. Right. But then it does, it makes it even more, it kind of raises more questions. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I like Pen- Penelope Cruz a lot and other stuff. I think she's better in sort of bigger, vampier parts too. I mean, she probably could have played the the Cameron Diaz role. She might've done a good Which job I think, with it. Uh, Angelina Jolie was originally slated for the Cameron Diaz role. She would have been good she too. Been, yeah. I, I liked Cameron Diaz in it as well. I feel like she could have even gone bigger with it. Like yeah. it's a character who's so outsized and... I really did like what I really liked about the crazy scene, the crazy car scene, is that the way that Javier Bardem is basically telling the story, and you realize that the character is like, which he says at the end a bit, but he was like totally like had like kind of put off by this and terrified by yes. it. It was too gynecological, yeah, exactly. I think, are his words. And he compares it to like one of those like catfish sucker. <laughs> <laughs> on the on like a that's a great tank. scene it's an amazing scene but i like that he also like he's telling this story like it's a sexy funny story to michael right. fassbender's character and it emerges like how disturbed he was by it while he's trying to have it be like a bro story mm-hmm. and i loved that that like in a lot of ways she he was actually he knows that he's completely outclassed by her and like he's afraid of her mm-hmm. but also is trying to pass it off like a relationship still and to kind of be like you know, uh, she's my girl and all of that. 
uh, you're like this crazy thing happens. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so it seems like we're pretty much on the same page. Is there anything else we left out? Yeah. Do you have a favorite line? I I kind of like uh, to see quarry killed with elegance is so moving to me. <laughs> I like uh, I asked her if she'd ever done that before, and she said she'd done everything before, and I believe her. <laughs> That's a good one. There are some good lines in there, there are. for sure. They That's definitely a, you are. know, it's not a terror. I, I, I mean, I could see people. I, I would certainly understand if someone said, I hated this movie, because it is eminently hateable if you're not on its wavelength. And I think even if you're on its wavelength, it's tough to love. Uh, but uh, I, I I enjoyed it to an to an extent. It's I, an interesting mess, I'd yeah, say. Yeah. An interesting mess is probably a good way to put it. Uh, that's the counselor, and it is available on VOD or for rent on Amazon or iTunes. Okay, behind the eight ball time on Film Spotting streaming video unit. You know how this goes. We count down three new titles to streaming. We give you two listener recommendations that you guys sent to us. And thanks to everyone who continues to send those recommendations. We love it. We appreciate it. And finally, one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists. <laughs> Way, to, way to shake it up. Yeah, I got yeah, to keep it fresh. All right, Allison, I think you're starting this time. I Are am. you ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right, let's start with uh, three new titles on streaming. Okay, first up is Modern Romance. That is new to Crackle. This is Albert Brooks's 1981 dark comedy in which he stars as uh, Robert Cole, a film editor uh, who breaks up with his girlfriend, Mary only to then freak out about it, get jealous that she's going to start dating someone else, and try to worm his way back into her arms where he would be miserable. And it is, like many Albert Brooks films, uh, kind of deliberately abrasive in a lot of ways. But if you like Albert Brooks, this is, you know, him in full form. Uh, It's available on Crackle. New to Netflix is Below. It's a 2002 horror film that combines two things that I tend to find very effective, effective in movies hauntings in enclosed spaces that you can't leave right and claustrophobic submarine settings Mm. so uh it's a film set on a world war ii submarine directed by david twohey of the riddick movies uh and co-written by darren aronofsky it's got uh basically haunted submarine uh got a great weird cast too bruce greenwood olivia williams scott foley jason fleming and zach galifianakis (laughs) i know (laughs) I know. And finally, also new to Netflix, The Returned. This is a French TV series that aired on Sundance TV, formerly Sundance Channel, in the fall. Now it is on Netflix. It's uh, based on the 2004 film They Came Back, if you remember that. They both share this premise of people who died suddenly coming back to life or like suddenly returning in exactly the age that they died, even if it was three decades ago. And it's set in a small mountain town where various people are, you know, glad, alarmed, horrified that their, you know, deceased lovers, siblings, and friends are suddenly back uh, just as they were when they died. And it's got a great soundtrack by Mogwai. So that's Returned, also new to Netflix. All right. How about two listener recommendations? We have a recommendation from Aaron who writes, I would like to recommend the documentary now streaming on Netflix called The Waiting Room, depicting a 24-hour period in an overcrowded emergency room in Oakland, California. It's a small film about a big issue. 
Many of the film's subjects are unemployed, uninsured, confused, and jaded by the American healthcare system. It doesn't wheel in experts as talking heads to make grand points about how the system is broken, though, letting the stories of regular people shine the light. It is also a great view into the lives of the hospital staff who have to care for desperate people on their worst day with few resources. It is incredibly complete, giving the restrained scope of the film. And Emily recommends After the Wedding, which is currently streaming on Netflix as well. She writes, I love this film. I saw it on Netflix several months ago. It renewed my faith in film. The acting and camera work are natural yet artful and also very beautiful. So strong recommendation there from Emily. Okay. And how about one random film from your my list? Uh, you gave me number 25. And that is As Luck Would Have It. This is a film from Alex de la Iglesia. I think I've I, you've given me another pick like before that was an Alex de la Iglesia film. So apparently you my love cue, not watching I his love, movies. I love telling myself that I'm about to watch <laughs> his movies. Um, this is a dark comedy about an out of work publicist who suffer, suffers from a terrible accident and then tries to sell the exclusive interview rights to the highest bidder in an attempt to provide for his family. So a dark comedy about media and, you know, as people who interact with publicists a lot, I feel like maybe there's something there of interest. <laughs> All right, Matt. So it's your turn now. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Three new picks. Okay. First, with the uh, recent passing of the great Harold Ramis uh, still on my mind, I'm going to go to bat for one of his less appreciated movies. Uh, Ghostbusters is on Netflix. And that one doesn't need any defense, but uh, Ghostbusters 2 just got added to Ooh. Netflix, and maybe that one does. I know some people really hate that movie, and I guess I, I just don't see it. I don't really understand why. I mean, is it as good as the first film? Of course not. Is it a decent sequel with tons of great moments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love the courtroom scene. I love Bill Murray making fun of a little baby. I even love the stuff at the end with the Statue of Liberty coming to life. The shameless attempt to totally recreate shameless. the Marshmallow Man. Who cares? It's a lot of fun. Also, the painting is scary. The painting. Vigo. Yes. Really Vigo scary. the Carpathian. Yeah. Vigo's terrifying. Yeah, totally. I should actually, I bet you they sell the painting now. Like, you That's can get a, a print of it. That's a good idea. To I should put it right here so when you're <laughs> when you're talking to me while we're podcasting, you have to look at Vigo. He's shuddering and the he would time. like he would, like, uh, like burrow into your mind like no. Peter McNichol and, like, take over your mind. Why? Thanks. And then you'd have to talk with that terrible accent. Yes. Vigo! <laughs> it is Vigo! That would be great. I think the listeners would really like that. Yeah, we'll start a Kickstarter. Okay, so that's Ghostbusters 2. I like it. And actually, as soon as I saw it was on there, I added it to the top of my Netflix. I was like, I haven't watched this in a while. I'm going to go watch it again. So I will be someone who will be watching it this week as well. All right. Also new to Netflix is one of the great masterpieces of the new Hollywood era, although we did not mention it on our episode in which we discussed the new Hollywood era. It's Easy Rider from director and star Dennis Hopper. Uh, he and Peter Fonda play drug-smuggling bikers who take the proceeds of their latest score and head to Mardi Gras. Drugs are smoked, the future of America is contemplated, and a star is born in the form of a very young Jack Nicholson. And really, American uh, studio filmmaking was changed forever. It's an important movie. It deserves to be seen really for that reason alone, but it's also a very good movie. Uh, stripped of that importance, I think it's aged pretty well, and uh, it's it's worth watching. That's Easy Rider on Netflix. And finally, for a slightly less reputable and even more fun experience, may I humbly recommend Wild Things, a deliciously tawdry thriller starring Matt Dillon, Nev Campbell, Kevin Bacon, Denise Richards, and Bill Murray. Uh, this was made probably at the absolute apex of the 
post-basic instinct erotic thriller <laughs> boom in Hollywood, both in terms of quality and quantity. It's it's famously got like a big three-way sex scene between three of the film's stars. I won't spoil for who in case you don't, haven't seen it. Bill Murray, Kevin Bacon, <laughs> <laughs> If only, Allison, if yeah. only. Uh, and yes, you do get to see Kevin's bacon in one scene. It's true. Uh, it's really one of the biggest twists. <laughs> physically? You mean no, how I it mean, looks? Like, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, the film begins when Matt Dillon's guidance counselor is accused by two of his students, played by Campbell and Richards, of rape. Uh, but this is really just the like the tip of the iceberg. There's all these twists. It's just it's just, just so much wonderful sleaze. It really is. Just just. Just a lot of fun. I give it my, my, my highest possible recommendation. It's really, really outstanding. But garbage. I mean, you have to know it's garbage. <laughs> That's Wild Things. It is streaming now on Netflix. Okay, two listener recommendations. Okay, both of my recommendations are by uh, listeners named Joseph. The first one comes from Joseph M. He says, Netflix just put down Periscope on streaming, and I watched it for the first time. As someone who loves 90s no-threat military comedies including Major Pain and In the Army Now, this one was pretty well done, and Kelsey Grammer was actually pretty charming. I just love that that, that is the most specialized genre to love. 90s no-threat military comedies. It sounds like a Netflix-worthy <laughs> category. Yeah, it does sound like a category It'll that you watch down Periscope, and then all of a sudden on your homepage, yes. it's like, you enjoyed Darren Periscope, so try these other 90s non-threatening military comedies. Exactly. Uh, so that's Down Periscope from Joseph M. And we've got another recommendation from Joseph U. He says, have you guys found Lilyhammer on Netflix yet? I'm trying to get the word around. I stumbled onto this series recently, and once I got acclimated to its many facets, I believe it's the freshest and most entertaining show I've seen in years. Starring little Stevie Van Zandt and set in Lilyhammer, it takes a minute to get used to the flow and season one while great is nothing compared to season two for me season two by season two the thing is nothing short of pure genius because of its uniqueness great music and scenery i could just ramble on i'm hoping there's more episodes coming maybe you will know if that's the case thanks and good luck uh we did know about lily hammer on netflix in fact we actually talked about it on Episode number three of Film Spotting back SVU. In the day. Way back on episode number three. It should still be online, filmspottingsvu.com, and you want to go back and listen to it. I don't think we actually watched the whole season. No, we watched uh, I like think the first part, half. Yeah, of the, we the weren't first... huge fans. No, but uh, it's but interesting to hear the second Joseph's season. Joseph's saying that yeah. the second season is so much better, and you said you did know that. It, it has been renewed for a third season. So yes. there you go. So we have good news to report. There, there are more episodes of Lilyhammer on the way. Okay, and one from your My List. You gave me number five, which is The Keep. It's actually a film we had as, I think, a listener's choice option. Yes. A couple of episodes ago, the uh, plot description from Netflix says, German soldiers are slain by an ancient spirit after they commandeer a Romanian castle during World War II. A Jewish scholar wants to unleash the demon to decimate the Nazis, but an enigmatic wanderer intends to keep the evil contained. Uh, it's a Michael Mann film, an early Michael Mann film. We had this as a option on our listeners' choice, and at that time, I just I just put it on my queue because I figured, well, I'm going to want to watch this whether it wins or not, and I haven't gotten around to it yet. It, it did not win, but it's still on there, so uh, I, I got to see it at some point. It does have a great plot description. That description is so <laughs> insane. Yeah, it's great. I got to I got to check it out at some point. The Keep on Netflix. 
Allison, should we go through our uh, listeners' choice options for next time? Yes. We've got three older titles, uh, not that old, but no. uh, they're you know no, we are not doing any new movies this this uh, this time around. I think it's a pretty good uh, batch. I'm not actually sure what's going to win. Yeah, I don't know either. I we like had it. a feeling the counselor was going to win last uh, yeah. time, and we might have uh, wanted it to win yes. a little bit. But this time, I'm I'm I'm, I'm interested. I think it's going to be close. Our first option is available on Netflix. It's a little film called. Panic Room, directed by David Fincher from 2002. It stars Jodie Foster and a young Kristen Stewart before she was Kristen Stewart from The Twilight Saga, amongst many, many other films. And uh, this was uh, David Fincher's follow-up to Fight Club. And that's sort of how I went into it. You know, I loved Fight Club. Uh, and this, to me, was a little bit of a disappointment. I mean, I enjoyed it, but it just didn't seem... That film was so brash. Like, Fight Club right. was so brash right. and stylish and, like... And a statement. And yes. it seemed like it was saying something about a generation. It was, like, it, you know, it was ambitious. And 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 Panic Room just seemed kind of like a, a, an a thriller. entertaining thriller. Yes. Right. So, but I might have... But I think now, and I actually haven't gone back and seen it since then, I might have downgraded it yeah. as a result. Same here. I'm curious. That's I, It's part one of the reasons we chose it, right? Right, Is exactly. To revisit it and see... no. Knowing Fincher now, and Fincher having like reached the status of what like the great filmmakers working right. today, right. if if it looks better in retrospect, yeah. So that's uh, that's option number one. Panic Room available on Netflix. Also available on Netflix is uh, our second option, Night of the Living Dead. This is the 1968 George A. Romero original, and is the film that really set out the modern day idea of the zombie. You know, the zombies have their roots in kind of all of this lore about people basically being stripped of their will. But the whole idea of like the flesh eating animated corpse back from the dead, back from the dead and like looking Shuffling to eat dead people eyed. and infect them. Yeah. That really was a Romero Romero idea and became, you know, basically part of the horror canon. And it's interesting. I think after, you know, we saw last year, one of the blockbusters was world war Z this multi, you know, hundred million dollar plus, I think, uh, movie starring Brad Pitt, and and that was a zombie movie. The idea that uh, it kind of began with this movie that cost $114,000 and his influence is still felt so much, uh, it should be interesting to revisit it. So that's Night of the Living Dead. It is available on Netflix. All right, and our third option is available on Hulu+. Plus. And it is Devil in a Blue Dress from 1995, directed by Carl Franklin. This was just added to Hulu. It's based on the book by Walter Mosley. It's about uh, Private Eye Easy Rollins, played by Denzel Washington. Uh, the film is also famous for a uh, an early role by Don Cheadle. He plays Mouse, and supposedly one of his great roles. And I say supposedly because this is a movie I've never actually seen, and I don't have a good excuse why, but... Just haven't gotten around to it, and over the years, I've heard it come up a lot. I know it's been mentioned on top fives on Film Spotting Original Recipe, and you know the film has kind of slowly built a, a nice little cult following. And I love private detective movies. I mean, uh, I just I feel like I would like to see this one quite a bit. I will probably this is like the keep. This one's going in the queue. It's probably going to get watched one way or the other. But I'd be happy if it was chosen. I'll read the plot description here. In 1948 Los Angeles, Ezekiel Easy Rollins is a World War II veteran who has been unfairly laid off from an aircraft manufacturer. He becomes a private investigator to pay the mortgage despite having no training. So uh, 
have you you haven't seen this one either, right? I have seen it. Oh, you like have back, seen it. Like back a long time ago. So it's though, been a long time. Maybe yeah, maybe remember, 20 years. Yes. <laughs> almost 20 almost years. Almost 20 years, yeah. And I just remember it being like a great Denzel Washington role. Okay. And also, uh, Carl Franklin, incidentally, directed episodes House of, of Cards. season two of House That's of Cards. That's right. I know. And I saw yeah. his name. I got really excited. I mean, he's done a lot of uh, good movies. Yeah. And now does more TV stuff. Uh, yet another reason to uh, choose this one. So there you go. So Devil in a Blue Dress is our third option. That's available on Hulu+. Plus. So which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, March 17th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, March 25th. FilmSpottingSVU is also where you can find our show archive and a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The FilmSpottingSVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. And don't forget, keep sending those suggestions to SVU at FilmspottingSVU.com. We love to read your listener recommendations during our Behind the Eight Ball segment. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. <laughs>